And my passion is to rid this great nation of America of soccer. Soccer here in the U.S. is due in part to the influx of immigrants saying, quote, I promise you, no American whose great-grandfather was born here is watching soccer. This is a waste of our time, energy, and resources. Niggas fighting over range, niggas won't be the game, but long live the chief. For a little old thing, little boys bang, bang. Long live the chief. Niggas fighting over range, niggas won't be the game, but long live the chief. Yeah, watch pretty mama while I slay my cane. Long live the chief. Cockroaches in the back. I have a dream. I will not rest until I see nothing but baseball, football, basketball. Hey, what's going on? It is Gabe Ledge. This is your Let's Fix Football for this week. It is Sunday, September 16th, and um, Evan, it's his 30th birthday, so he's having a quarter or whatever third of a life crisis and jumping out of an airplane doing some skydiving bullshit or whatever. So uh, his loss, because joining me today is my very good friend, Om Arvind. Om, how you doing, buddy? Welcome to the show. Om, you are a writer for Managing Madrid. Um, you are also a co-host of the Managing Madrid podcast, but you're also um, a kind of freelance stat analyst and and uh, data and data wonk. Am I? Uh, is that basically how you would describe uh, yourself? I mean, I think that's I think that's actually pretty complimentary. I <laughs> I, 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 play, I play around with data a little bit, not nearly at the level of of some of the other guys, even at the amateur level. But I, I am really into it try to keep up to date with with all the new metrics that are being developed and then they're starting to be developed at quite a rate they i think are. we're also going to talk about that later in this podcast so yeah yeah dude we're we're gonna get into that where i talk about it but i think before any of that any of that because uh there's another part of 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 uh, of the way I would describe you that I think people would be interest, of interest to people on the show is that you are a participant towards uh, in in uh, the kind of broader football Twitter world to the extent that your account was included on like that that list of accounts on foot like football Twitter accounts that that dude was doing and there was a whole poll where this guy was like. I don't remember if it was best or worst football Twitter accounts, <laughs> but you were on it. Oh yeah, it was worst Twitter accounts. I think that's what it was. It was like <laughs> something like the most insufferable or something. There were, it was a lot of it was in good fun. Like some of the some of the people like he just put some of those, his friends on. Oh, yeah. But then but then there was like the really problematic. Like they were like split up into four groups. I think there was like the problematic section. So like resistibility of that kind of type was there. <laughs> and then I think there was something like you know the the section that just like thinks they're too smart or something. And I was in that. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say that's pretty accurate. But yeah, that was, that was all good fun. I mean, that's basically true with all of us. I mean, we're I, the only reason you even, you know, like to, to go on to that stupid website is to make jokes. So either you think you're funny or is to like try to make deep points. So you think you're smart. And like, but yeah, the reason I bring that up is that we have a very interesting football Twitter related fight going on today where, um, friend of the Managing Madrid podcast, Adam Digby, was referring to an event that happened today in the Juventus match where I think Douglas Costa spat, spat at someone and, and tried to get into a fight and got a red card on VAR, which is a very interesting thing. 
Uh, did you did you actually watch that just before we like joke like make jo- jokes about like what actually? No, went down? I I didn't I didn't watch I didn't watch the game or I didn't watch the incident, but I was aware of this. I think I I saw like I saw Adam Digby's tweets. Like he did a series of tweets on it, which is what is being quote tweeted in the argument. And I saw that and it all it all like was pretty straightforward. Like I didn't understand what there was to argue with it, but our man registability, you know, he, he has to say something dumb and he did and <laughs> Adam Adam had a quite nice and respectful respectful clapback. Yeah, dude. I uh basically what happened, so Adam was talking about it and Registability said, RG, friend of the show, um Two games for spitting shows how much you know about the game. <laughs> he said to Adam Digby, who is one of the like, uh, I'd say I would like preeminent or to higher higher end Italian football analysts in the game. So just picking fights with like, he's he's punching up uh, once again after his fight with Petr Cech last week. Like this is another is punch amazing. up. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, Adam Digby is very, very well respected. Um, as you said, friend of the Managing Madrid podcast. Like, I don't understand what there is to argue here. Like, and, and Adam, Adam replies with, nope, I just know how Italian football works. And like, I feel like that's the only way you can reply because this is just about the fucking rules. The rules, the rules say something and that's it. But, you know, registability, fact-based account. He tells you the truth no matter how difficult it is to accept it. So this is the truth. This is the truth. The truth is that Adam knows nothing about what's going on uh, and that registability knows much more, that he, he that Douglas Costa should and will get a 10-game ban, not a two-game ban, and that itself, in and of itself, is worth fighting uh, fighting a, a, a journalist about. That's definitely worth it. He, as we were talking about last week, me and Evan, reducibility's like whole thing is to like, you made, you had this really great comment where like people basically defend really, really benign, boring takes and pretend like people never said it before. And like, that is reducibility's game. Like they're like, oh, you know, no one ever talks about how really good at shooting Messi is. It's always <laughs> dribbling and no one ever and passing, but he's actually a really good shot that no one ever talks about that. Yeah, it's he's like a really interesting case study on on what a huge portion of like what, what is called FT football Twitter is like is like a bunch of like I'd say like teenagers or like people in their young 20s at best, sadly my age group. <laughs> hey, come on! Our age group. I'm still in my twenties. Uh, All right, our our age group. <laughs> just like having trying to sound cool and edgy with their football opinions, so like they can, so they can sound intelligent and and like classy or whatever, like with the black and white pictures and like their supposed knowledge of tactics, mixed with this really weird like. And, and really open type of like homophobia, racism and stuff oh, yeah. that like, it's supposed to even make them even edgier and even cooler. And like if you've even like gone to that side of Twitter at all, which I'm sure everyone who's lis- listening to this podcast has, you know, exactly, you, know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, that's- it's just like pervasive. It's and just, this is this is one of the guys that like needs it. <laughs> it's just weird like space where like – uh, I think we both know, like the the kind of Vox Media extended SB Nation kind of crew is actually like a group of people who are much more like 
much better politics. Like, we don't need to get into exact. I mean, look, there are a lot, much more. There's a whole like group of like more leftist polit like people who have leftist politics who do soccer, and they're all of like the people that I came up with, like the the SB Nation people. Uh, uh, I you know a bunch of these a bunch of these different accounts that are great, and then there's this entirely you know it's extremely related because they all operate within the same media ecosystem, but they're like they have all the, the it's the same idea except for take everything and make it worse. So if they have if let's say Kim McCauley will make some sort of interesting insight about a game that's being played, like. Oh, uh, actually, it's really interesting that Fiorentina is playing this new tactical scheme, and then actually say something about it. The, whatever you take that idea, but make it worse. Like, oh, it's amazing how um, Ernesto Valverde's Barcelona is still really playing possession-based football, and like talk about that uh, as if that's some sort of huge revelation just for the just for the interactions and the content. And then they'll also like pop into other people's mentions and say shit like. I can't believe you're letting a like listening to a woman's analysis on this game. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like there's that, and then there's this whole like it's it, it really is like a high school type like social interaction hierarchy type thing. Like that's literally what it is. It's like these people who try to become super popular on this place and and then get like a bunch of acolytes to worship them with, and like reply with like W's. Yo. Like yeah. to everything, it, that 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 to me is like emblematic of what this whole thing is. It's like you're trying to own someone, but like you'll do it often in like a really racist or homophobic <laughs> way. Like that that that's like what gets the most interactions, right? It's like you call someone a stupid pocky, et cetera, et cetera, right. or like a smelly <laughs> Afghanistan or something like that. Like basically that type of insult, and it'll get like crazy interactions, and it'll just be like replies of thirty like thirteen year olds just saying, just replying with like. A W or like a, a GIF of someone <laughs> waving a W flag, like that's just what it is. It, it's it's a, it's like hilarious, but also like disturbing at the same time. It's, it's like, just got, it sums up what it is. It's like this weird analog, like I said, of the not not of this like espionage Twitter, but of like the weird like kind of lib Twitter where it's like someone says something theoretically kind of woke, and then like you get like hundreds of interactions of people all posting the same GIF of that like fat guy like leaning back with his mouth open and applauding you know like <laughs> this is this is what they're going for except for w with like oh like you you know this like x x oh only oh dude that's so fucking gay or whatever and like it's like really like this this is what we want and what's amazing to me is that people like we were saying with a little bit with evan last week but like what's amazing is that people if you actually go into these people and there are a lot of them all you basically have to do is look for football and like go on to kind of the general football twitter world and you'll see essentially anyone with a black and white photo in there you know that's especially a black and white photo of a player or of just their face they're basically all going to be doing this. And then you have like hundreds of people who are really asking them serious questions like, oh, um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on has, and, uh, like Azar's chances for player of like, the year? And they preface it with like chief or boss or something like that. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's insane. Like, I love it. Uh, another amazing thing that I really love that we, we I wanted to talk about was how this new – uh, meme format or GIF form. I can't know what the hell this is, but this new format of people, someone holding like it's like this ASCII sign, a guy holding up a sign, and I don't think I've ever seen that format, like 
with an actual good opinion. Like this dude, Max, who who had this thing that was circulating a lot this week, which was, was don't call yourself a football fan if you haven't watched your team play in real life. No, that's just such a fucking stupid opinion. <laughs> like I don't understand how we've found a meme format, like in a like a Twitter format that is just a perfect place to broadcast your bad ideas. And people will inter- – like, if he just – I bet if he had just tweeted that shit without having anyone – like, without putting it in this format, no one would have reacted to it. Yeah, it's – it's it's strange. Like, it, it – the way it manages to, like, kind of almost, like, highlight what you're saying and, like – it makes it <laughs> seem edgy, right? Like, that's – like- that's, like – that's kind of like the the objective of all of these types of accounts is to like portray yourself in some kind of like edgy like you know anti-political correctness way right like i i mean that's why registability like really tells you what this kind of thing is because in his bio right like fact-based account i tell you the truth no matter how hard (laughs) it is to hear and that's what everyone is trying to replicate in their own way and this this is what this kind of meme format is it's It's like standing up with a sign and saying (laughs) hey attention to this really bad fucking opinion I have. Please look at it. I'm edgy as fuck. Uh, Just in terms of this, people can like football teams and not have watched them play uh, in in their own stadium. That's so fucking stupid. I don't even think it's worth responding to it, but I just wanted to point out how dumb that is. People can be fans of whatever the hell they want. It's sports. Who cares? Like, don't put conditions on being fans. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, Jesus Christ, let people like things for one. That that's what really gets me about this whole thing. Yeah. Is that in high school, people didn't like kind of realize that people are sort of allowed to like what they like. Like you all <laughs> they always like had these people making fun of you for for what you liked or what you cared about. But like people are allowed to care about and like stuff. Yeah, and also there's this there's this xenophobic element that comes into it because yeah. like, you know, all the pocky comments and stuff like the, the, the idea of what a pure football fan is, is, especially in England, is like you were born in England, probably a white male, and everyone else is like they can't be included in that space. Like right. So if you're from like India or whatever, you're not a true fan. And it's like it really is that distaste for, pe- for people who who have different skin colors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you don't want them included, right? Like that cannot be denied. Like it's these same people who say you can't call yourself a football fan if you haven't watched your team play are the same people going around calling people pockies for yeah. fun because they think it's funny. And yeah. that, I mean, there's just so much, like, the opinion is just bad on so many levels. Like, I can't, I don't even know when to start, but that's certainly a part yeah, of it. Yeah, definitely. And shout out uh, Unusual Efforts, a uh, really great website um, for female analysts and, and it actually features a lot of really great writing. But one of the pieces I want to bring up with respect to exactly what you just said, it's a great piece by a uh, Singaporean uh, woman who I can't remember her name. I'm sorry, but she wrote an incredible piece about how she became a fan, such a big, and let's be clear, such a huge fan of the English national team that she went to a friendly in a different country an England friendly in a different country. And like, she has this experience of people being like, oh, you're not really a fan. Like, oh, why are you like, why did you get into it? Oh, like all this stuff is like, well, you know that I'm, I'm English and I love this team. And if she and she loved the team enough to travel to like Bosnia to watch them play a fucking friendly. It's ridiculous. Don't yeah, question I, people like that. It's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, like and, and the thing that gets me the most about this is like these people want like 
a very local core based group of fans that look like them and talk like them but they also want their same clubs to be global powerhouses. They right. want their clubs to be huge. And the only way you can do that is by having fans across the world. It's, it's just hilarious that there's this dichotomy here, this this cognitive dissonance that, that like just isn't addressed. Like These people will just hold these two separate opinions and just have absolutely no problem with it. I want my club to be huge and big and have millions of fans. But also, I don't want plastics on my team. I don't want people from outside my area. Yeah. I'm the only true fan. Like, it's like I said, it's it's a terrible opinion on so many levels. <laughs> All right. So the last sort of let's fix football-y, like, it's our on-brand stuff. So, like, our last sort of um, on-brand thing. I just wanted to bring up. Uh, I watched Manchester United play yesterday um, against Watford. It was actually a pretty interesting pretty interesting game on a lot of levels, but uh, let's just throw out all the soccer stuff at one go and just say they have some fucking ugly-ass kits. They are rolling out some salmon-colored, salmon-colored kits. Like, that. that is just disgusting. But it, Barcelona's third kit just dropped, and it is also salmon-colored. I don't know why there's so many salmon-colored kits, but this is all-time bad kit for me. Um, I hate it so much. I mean, I... I, I actually like like Man United's home kit because it had this like really nice like I think blend I think it's red blending into black and it yeah, just yeah. looked really slick. But this is just this is just bad. Like if you want to do pink for me, there's only two ways to do it. One, you kind of go all out and sort of pursue that kind of hot pink like Real Madrid did in yeah. 2014-15. Like I really liked that kit a lot. I thought yeah. it underrated good. kit. Or you could do, or you you could do the. You can do the light pink, but it has to be like uh, it has to be like proper light pink, not not like this weird salmon color. So Palermo's pink kit, I yeah. can't remember which season it was, or or I don't know if they have it every single season, but like one of those editions is yeah. really good. Just Google Palermo pink kit, like that's how you do a light pink kit. These I mean, are just awful for me. Yeah, I mean this Barcelona kit is just so wildly ugly, and I think what makes it, I think actually if Barcelona had just they did. They have this thing in the middle where it looks like they've cut their their shirt sideways, like diagonally across, like as if it's a fucking sandwich. And like it, and then they've they've included a darker <laughs> pink with the salmon pink. And if if what's amazing to me is if they could just choose one of those two colors and not try to like do this weird pattern where they fade into each other or something. Then it, it might have been an okay kit. Like they can, they Barcelona's favorite famous thing is to do these stupid neon third kits, which you know some of them are good, some of them are terrible. And then they've also done these terrible kits where one neon color fades into another one, and that's what we have this year. This year it's a neon pink fading into a salmon, which is a fucking disgusting <laughs> combination. <laughs> I think also. What they're trying to do is they're trying to print a pattern of like the aerial view of Barcelona, like the city, onto their shirt, and like you just don't, you, you don't, don't even know oh what you're God. seeing. It just looks like a bunch of fucking squares. Like, it, yeah, I think that's what it's. I think I read that somewhere. It's just, it's just <laughs> awful. Like, it's just absolutely terrible. Like, it's I remember so those bad. Like Barcelona's had some classic kits. I'm not just being biased because we're yeah. both Madrid fans. Like, I think it was the 2008-09 season. 
where they had like this really like nice division between black and red, like just two blocks. Like, oh yeah, on that was really really nice. Like, I have no problem appreciating good kits wherever they come from. This is just objectively really really ugly. Real bad guys, and I'm not I'm I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Madrid have always had good kits too. Madrid have had some vile kits. I mean, a couple years ago, I think it was the year of the the the. Uh, the undecima, the one where, but it had a kit that was just, it looked like gray pajamas and you can see sweat oh stains God. on it. That was the <laughs> that worst was kit I've ever seen. So bad. That is arguably the worst kit we've ever had. Yeah. It looked, it looked kind of okay. You know, you, to convince yourself if you just saw it online but when you saw the players playing in it my god it was awful awful it was awful awful um last thing uh shout out to um incredible interview between pep guardiola and jorge valdano where pep guardiola said and i quote and this is amazing i quote the premier league seems better than it is because of the way it's sold and the way they broadcast the product Amazing comment from Guardiola. And what's amazing to me is it's so wildly correct. Like this is a I mean, he's not an idiot. We know that he's a brilliant man. But this diagnosis of the I mean, and he doesn't even experience why like the the culture of other like of especially the United States, the, the United States American culture. No one chooses to be a fan of any uh, Liga or even Serie, uh, like Serie A, any Liga, maybe Bundesliga because Fox Sports won broadcast league games, maybe. But really, it's oh, what what European team are you uh, a fan of? And you can literally, I've met people, fans of maybe fifteen of the top end uh, mm. British clubs. Not a, not anyone. I've never even met anyone who's a fan of Valencia, which is yeah, ridiculous. I mean, this is absolutely spot on. Like. Part of like why I've loved Guardiola going to England is he just spits out these truths to English fans and towards the English media that other managers just don't feel interested in doing because Guardiola has experienced three of the best leagues in the world. He's experienced the Bundesliga, he's experienced La Liga, and he's experienced the Premier League, and he knows what it's all about. Yeah. And he's before he's criticized like you know the the way English journals cover other uh, English journalists cover other leagues and and talking about how the Premier League really isn't as good as it seems. And this, I think, is the most spot on comment from him so far. There have yeah. been threads or like tweets, you know, over the past couple of years on this topic, talking about how just the simple fact that the Premier League makes their their pitches and the whole broadcast like a brighter tone, like the, the like. If you if you watch Premier yeah. League games and you watch say La Liga or Serie A games, the pitch on the Premier League, like on your TV, it just looks like this really nice, bright, yep. vibrant green. But then if you look at La Liga or Serie A or something else, it just looks dull. It's like and, those. You know, you, it's like those commercials for uh, Allegra where like at first you see like this filter where everything looks sort of gray and then they're like, but if you take Allegra and then you take the filter off and it's this beautiful, bright field. I mean, like it's exactly what that's totally correct. I, and, it's, and it's so easy to do. Like someone someone did it for La Liga. They just went on Photoshop and they changed an image and it looked exactly like the Premier League product. Like this doesn't even take any investment. It literally just takes like having yeah. basic video editing skills to do this and that's such a simple way to make your product more attractive i think that's the, something the premier league has understood that other leagues haven't yeah. like the aesthetic of your product the way you present it really matters i mean it's just easier it's just yeah. easier on the eyes to watch premier league games and if you're a new fan 
who doesn't really know much about the sport, who doesn't know about the history of all these teams, you're going to watch the product that's just easier on the eyes and more pleasant to look at. It's as simple as that. And I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for La Liga to change this anytime soon because we all know how incompetent they are. But this right. is an extremely easy fix and it kills me. Yeah. And it's just a minor, uh, minor color correction. In addition, I mean, obviously they've also done a very good job of – and and that's because the networks that that own the rights abroad have done a very good job of just hammering in this notion that this is the most competitive, most exciting league in the world, when in, in reality, it just simply isn't. I mean, just because Jose Mourinho's Manchester United are imploding and every game is, a, is, a, is feels like they're about to collapse doesn't make the every game and every Premier League match, you know, doesn't make it more competitive, more interesting. Basically, you know, we it's, it's just a coin flip between whether Liverpool or Manchester City will win the win the league this year and and that's sort of it like they they're really the only two good teams on a real and even on a continental level i think right now but that being said i wanted to so i'm just gonna shift around the outline a little bit to, to talk a little bit about that exact thing marketing leagues internationally because um for or sorry for the financial times one of the preeminent uh, newspapers, or well, I guess yeah, I guess a newspaper, financial magazine slash newspapers in the world, uh, published an article um, which you shared to me, and I hadn't actually seen about how Juventus is making some bets on the Ronaldo deal, and they essentially, I wouldn't say exactly, and they don't focus on what I focused on, which was the FIFA's. Uh, uh, standard for lo- uh, looking at these transactions between related parties, but they do spend the entire article talking about how essentially uh, Juventus is making a gamble on what they are calling the Ronaldo effect to wildly increase viewership and sponsorship. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty much exactly the article that you wrote like around a month ago, which I think, you know, kind of validates all your analysis. Like, like you said, Financial Times preeminent you know, financial newspaper, it's it's interesting. Like, I was highly, highly skeptical of this gamble to buy Ronaldo for the amount of money that they did. And, yeah. you know, I still, I'm still slightly skeptical because it is a risk. Like, even this article, you know, and I, I've read, like, three or four reports now. I've, I've read, like, a long, like, 30-page report, which I sent to you, Gabe, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I've yeah. read this one. They all all come to the conclusion that Juventus is gambling on a bunch of things happening for this to work out. And the question is how, 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 how likely are those things? I think, I think it's justifiable. I think if you want to, to really like enter that elite of the elite, the, the cream of the crop clubs, which are really only like four, they're like what Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United from like a financial, like yeah, right, financially. You have to make these types of gambles because it's so hard to break into. Like even PSG has all this money. They bought Neymar and Mbappe. They're still not at that level. Right. Like this is something you kind of have to do if you want to get there. If you want to win the Champions League, if you want to, you know, be be considered up with a Barca or Real Madrid. So we'll see how it goes. It it could it could end up not working out for them in the way that they want. I mean, all it takes is Ronaldo to get injured seriously injured and at this age he's not going to recover that well and then it's all done but yeah. if, it, if, if, if it works I think if, if if Ronaldo goes on to have the season we expect him to even accounting for his natural decline 
then I think there's a chance that it works out for them. And, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes. This is a really interesting thing. So, we, yeah, I, people should people should be following this a little bit more closely than they are. Obviously, people are not, not saying they aren't following Ronaldo, but I think that following the financials of this, I mean, what what actually is amazing to me is that Juve or the the Financial Times and I both came up with about the same yearly cost for this deal, except for theirs is about ten million more because I wasn't accounting for two other factors of the Ronaldo deal. Because on top of the amount paid to Real Madrid, they also have to pay a certain percentage of the deal of of his salary to. Previous two previous clubs, Manchester mm-hmm. United and Sporting, both of whom have retained some rights to the amount of money that Ronaldo, uh, any transfer uh, that Ronaldo has paid for. So they have to pay those. That's a little bit more. And then on top of it, there's a couple million euros a year in agent fees. And that's that's just on top on top of all of this money that they're already in trouble with. They they have to pay for that. And so we saw them. We haven't seen uh, Juventus make major player asset sales because they really. I think they really are gambling on, like I said, this this idea of the Ronaldo effect, which the uh, Financial Times I think correctly talked about. How sure there is a lot uh, a lot to be gained in terms of a marketing perspective, but uh, it it to me, Ohm, it seemed it seems like a more of a gamble than maybe people really thought originally, partially because I. Uh, Partially, partially because you're hearing a lot of these same phrases about how, yeah, this is going to help us open up to the like Asian markets, which every club says, well, the way we're going to fix our finances or way we're going to expand and become a global brand is by opening ourselves up to the Asian markets in this way. And sure, maybe this happens, but it's a lot more of a gamble, I think, than 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 I think some of the some of the writers are, ex, you know, calling it just because. Mm-hmm. It's not a given that, you know, people in like suddenly adding Ronaldo will make this Juventus, right? Like these are two different brands. Adding Ronaldo to the Juve brand generally, sure, it'll help a lot, but it won't necessarily, by definition, catapult Juventus into a a new stratosphere in China or in India just by itself. Yeah, I think – even in the Financial Times article, which you correctly say, which was a little more bullish, you know, a little more positive uh, about the financial per side of this deal. Even they, they mentioned like a critic in the piece briefly who said, you know, the gamble is Ronaldo is going to make Syria more popular, which is like the end goal, right? Like that's the way you like to, to get more right. exposure is the end goal for how Juventus sees this deal being like a financial payoff. Part of that is contingent on the league as a whole becoming more attractive, not just, you know, Juventus itself. You know, that's part of why the Premier League, like they they even said in the article, like some of the bottom teams in the Premier League could pull pull off this deal, you know, financial deal for Ronaldo. No sweat, which is absolutely mind boggling if you think about it. And it's all because of what we were talking about before, how the Premier League has marketed itself, you know, to be the most attractive league in the world. And And then I think. I think there's also, like, I was surprised Juventus didn't sell more because they sold Higuain, which everyone knew was going to happen. It had to happen, not just for tactical reasons, the fact that they play the same position, but because Higuain is on massive wages. But then they, they then they don't sell anyone else, really, like, who, who has those high wages. And then they go on and, you know, increase Sami Khedira. I think he was, he's 31 years old now. Like, they increase his contract a lot to something like 230000 
you know, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it's around that. That to me is that to me is like a little surprising, and I was like, I don't know how that's necessarily going to work out. So that means, you know, aside from selling Higuain, like you mentioned, they're gambling a lot on on the Ronaldo effect, and there's a lot of risk there. There is a lot of risk there, and they didn't. Their return for Higuain actually wasn't anywhere close to I think what it could have been if they had tried to. Uh, to shop him a little bit. I mean, they sold him to HC Milan. It was part of this weird swap deal that involved Bonucci going back to to Juventus. Bonucci, by the way, who's, what, 36? Like, he's still very good, but... You know they they are suddenly gambling on and by the way shipping off Bucci's a twenty five he's not thirty one all right he's not quite as old as as I thought but they are gambling on a back line that's going to feature three main players who are over in not just you know, so on the wrong age of end of thirty and I don't remember is it Barzagli then who's like thirty six one of uh maybe. Maybe Barzagli is definitely the oldest player there. So it, they're gambling on a very old back line to and you know to to solidify this attack against uh, you know to, to to solidify their defense because and and that seemed to me to be a gamble on top of all the other gambles that they're making, which is it's in a strange one because I mean and I think a lot of people and in in in. Um, uh, Juve would say it's worth it if they can win the Champions League, but we know how fluky the Champions League can be, and uh, just how just having Ronaldo doesn't at all guarantee you a Champions League title. Just because Ronaldo's won four out of the last five, he didn't win any of the previous editions, even when he was on Real Madrid and with a lot of good players surrounding him. He is a very good player. He's on the wrong side of thirty himself. And it's not. I mean, and you're you're really wagering everything on being able to win the Champions League, which is a, it's. I mean, it's a coin flip. It's not. I mean, Real Madrid is the reason it's such a historic thing to do the three peat, the double, much less the three peat, was that this is a competition that it, that involves so much so much luck and and a bunch of two tie matches where you know into like small individual moments can put you over the top. Like I, one of my most vivid memories is uh, I think it was. Oh two, oh three, Real Madrid in in I think the quarters or the semis playing against Juve, where they they I think were pretty clearly the better team. But then Luis Figo missed a penalty, and Luis Figo didn't miss penalties. I mean, that's all it takes. Yeah, I mean, even if you want to look at Real Madrid's three victories, which no one no one can take that away from the team, like they deserved it. But if you even want to pick that apart, especially our our third Champions League victory you can rightly point to a bunch of ties and say, yeah, I don't know. On a, another day, I don't think Real Madrid goes through, especially oh, the Bayern, yeah. Munich, Bayern Munich tie. You know, the Juventus tie was definitely a case of Ronaldo just being a level above everyone else. Even in Liverpool, against Liverpool in the final, like we were looking pretty shaky until Salah became injured and like the whole momentum was killed <laughs> and we were able to slowly work our way back in. So like you said, it's not a gamble. The article even mentions like, the, the Juventus president is gambling on going really far in the Champions League, and it would be a disaster if they if they didn't go far. So, like, say they get unlucky and they get Barcelona in the round of 16, because remember, Ronaldo can face Barcelona now because he's no longer with the Spanish team. That was not something Real Madrid had to worry about. If he faces Barcelona in the round of 16, you know... Or Real Madrid, or, like, or, like... Or Real Madrid itself, like... <laughs> They, they could realistically be out even if Ronaldo plays really, really well. And then all of a sudden, the deal just doesn't look that good from a financial standpoint because they need to go far in the knockout rounds. I'd say at least semifinals to get the money that they're expecting 
from the Champions League because yeah. that's part of their calculation. Huge part of their calculation. So, and, I mean, if there was one guy you were going to bet on in the Champions League, it is Cristiano oh, yeah. But it, it, you know, don't don't think this is just a given. Like this could go wrong as much as as much as it could I mean, go. A right. lot of places that even the Financial Times article I didn't talk about uh, as much in my piece because it was more about one of the things that I'm most interested that could go really wrong for them because it would directly impact their ability to increase revenue from sponsorships, which is the question of related party transactions. But I mean, the other one, there are a lot of other things that can go wrong and go wrong kind of aggressively for them and go wrong kind of spectacularly. You know, a Ronaldo injury is just one, you know, part of it. There are a lot of other, a lot of other random things that can go wrong in if you're betting on a lot of things happening the way they are. But it's still, to be frank, I'm still making this deal if I'm Juve. Yeah, I agree with that at the end of the day because. Because I think I mentioned this on one of like the older Madrid podcasts when we were discussing Ronaldo leaving or like before it had been confirmed, but we we all knew what was going to happen. Juventus have are are thinking of, as much as the article where we're talking about talks about the long term and how Juventus sees them boosting their financial, you know, standing in a long term perspective in terms of a legacy standpoint, which is a huge part of this goal, right? Like trying to, to bring them to the top up with the top clubs, not just from a financial standpoint, but legacy wise, they've won yeah, 70 yeah. titles in a row, but no one right. talks about that team in the same breath that they do about Lionel Messi's Barca or Ronaldo's Real Madrid. And that's because they haven't won a champions league. Yep. If um, they want to be considered one of the best teams of this generation, they need to win that. And I think that's what they're going for. And so, you know, they signed the best man to do that. And they, they also, I mean, Serie A also, I mean, part of this deal is, again, Serie A becoming more something that people want to watch. And there's a huge question in my mind about whether that's going to be true if you have one team that wins every you know game week in, week out. I don't see, I, I honestly don't see how it would be that different from the Bundesliga, uh, given that both, we have two teams that win the league every year. Uh, and it's and it's really just a question of who can come in second, who's going to make the Champions League, and whether those individual teams will win the Champions League, which would admittedly boost their leagues. I mean, I'm I'm very skeptical, uh, but I'm still making that deal. Let's also there, another important international thing. This is it's funny. This is more of a newsy show than we I guess we can always do, but big news coming out of FIFA leaking in the New York Times. Apparently, the FIFA board and and, and FIFA president Yanni Infantino. Uh, at Infantino, <laughs> to keep directing everyone there, uh, Yanni Infantino. We're talking about doing a kind of broad and sweeping revamp of the way that international transfer system works. Very interesting, Ohm. Yeah. Um, I I mean, yeah. here, let's just run. Th- I'm just going to quickly run through it. I, it, part of the reason that I that I wanted to bring it up was because, I mean, it's obviously quite important to talk about, but it's because it's one of the few things I've ever seen from FIFA where I actually think that it has the right, not the, I don't think these are necessarily the right policies or even the right policy ideas, but I actually think they are the, they are driving at the right concerns. Yeah. Um, all right. So they're talking, they really want to deal with um, a lot of things, but one of the things they want to deal with a lot is the spy, like the, what they see is a spiraling power of super agents like Mino Raiola, uh, among others. Um, Shout out to Mino Raiola's Twitter account who you should all follow. 
Uh, also, by the way, shout out to 442, among others, for not publishing my – for <laughs> rejecting my article that the Financial Times then basically published um, by someone else two months before this was published. Just shout – like I, I reached out to a bunch of you. You guys are all great. Good job. Way to, <laughs> way to reject that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so it's the, 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 the issues with the growing, so the growing value, uh, uh, player valuation in the market, the growing power of super agents uh, to kind of conduct these deals. I think that I, a good example of, you know, the way that these agents and people can, can really make, make the market feel unfair, which is a big part of this is the example of the transfer between Malcolm to Barcelona, where he had a, he had a contract signed with Roma. I mean, he had a, a number of pre-agreements with Roma, but his agent was out there angling to get him a better deal with a better team. And at the, literally at the last second, after his mother and parents had flown to Rome, decided to reroute him to Barcelona where he would sign it. That, that I think is, it's not not great, and uh, the way that they project and theorize, like the, the the they imagine doing this, is by kind of processing information and uh, negotiations through a central clearinghouse body. And so, I think Om, you had a good question about this: whether whether the 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 clearinghouse would be a physical location. Mm-hmm. My understanding is more that in in financial markets we call it like it's it, it when you buy a stock it's not just you buying a stock um so you have to go through a number of intermediaries the central intermediary is the body that processes the transaction um called the exchange uh and my my uh, my belief and I'm getting a phone call that's cool that's exciting <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and decline this um my uh my belief is that the clearinghouse uh, format will be essentially like that, where there it'll be basically a way to process information uh, where clubs would come to talk to each other uh, and have agents be part, you know, part of the negotiations, but there would be very little uh, transacting through that body behind people's, behind people's back. I also think a clearinghouse would help, uh, teams avoid dealing with what we call the fax machine issue (laughs) because you'd be sending your orders and you're sending your agreements through a a single body. Uh, It'd be very, very much easier than a So for example, Real Madrid and Manchester United had an agreement, but what happened with the fax machine issue that we call it is that they didn't fax the paperwork, literally fax the paperwork to FIFA entire UEFA in time for that, uh, for that transaction to go through. So I think I, I, I sort of like this idea of a, of a central clearinghouse that would allow for more free and open exchange of information and negotiation. Yeah. I, 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 from what I understand, which is limited compared to your knowledge of this, it seems like, it seems like a good concept. You know, I'm interested to see how this plays out again in the, the New York times article. It, it says that, this this concept, which is really their, the biggest concept that FIFA and Infantino are planning, is going to take several years to implement. Obviously, like there's negotiations that has to be had with clubs. I can't imagine that super clubs are super, are going to be really that happy about FIFA having this level of oversight. Yes, but yeah. I, I think I think in in, in all there is a decent concept, but there's also like there's also problems with it, like 
something questionable, right? Like using the, the part of their whole plan is is they don't want like these crazy, you know, two hundred fifty million you know euro type transfers happening anymore because it's just inflating the market out of reach of anyone besides like three to four clubs. Literally, is they're going to use some kind of algorithm to benchmark a player's price, and that. That is questionable because one, first of all, they need to be really transparent about how this algorithm is used. Yeah. And you know, there will be lots of arguments over the validity of it. I mean, and just using one single metric to determine that, like how do you take into account like the Ronaldo effect, for example? How do you take into account like the client? Like, I don't know about that, and I'm not so sure yeah. that that part of the plan is actually gonna come to fruition. And there are two other parts of the plan that I I mean that that I think is is very questionable whether whether any attempt to benchmark a like top value for a player is either desirable or a good thing uh, or a a useful thing that actually would would help make things fair i just i don't see how that itself is a good idea and on top of that you know and and that Anytime where FIFA is using some impenetrable thing to talk about how much money is allowed to flow in one direction, it's just a terrible, it's just not going to work out. There's going to be issues of bribery, there's going to be questions of the algorithm, uh, unless like, even with I think the idea that the algorithm is totally public, I don't think this is, it's just that would ever work. But on top of that, and the worst I think of this are two... uh, you know, and one 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 idea that I I don't I don't hate is that they would require buyout clauses. Um, that I don't hate because buyout clauses can always be quite high. Um, so I don't you you can always as long as they don't cap buyout clauses, then I think we're fine. That that wouldn't affect things that much. I like the idea the notion of a of a of a where a way that you can just buy the like a a dollar amount that you set on a contract to say you can just buy it, but. The one that I really and 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 the one I get what I got really worried about, Ohm, and this this you know, there is a there's a push to the American model, which I I actually think the American model may not result in better the uh, better actual sports, but it does result in more competitiveness, especially at the top, with mm-hmm. you know these things where each team really does sort of believe that they're going to be able to construct a team that would be able to win the championship, which is not what occurs right now. And I think that's a good and honorable and laudable goal in sports. Um, that being said, the way that the Americans constructed had a lot of give and take. A lot of, there were a lot of negative things that happened, and the idea that FIFA would try to do this, and and the idea I'm talking about is the idea would be a salary cap based on a percentage of the team's revenue as um as a mechanism to prevent teams from falling into financial difficulty. That to me seems to be an actually catastrophic idea. Uh, if nothing else, own because a salary cap by definition is not a cap on sure it's a cap on the amount of total money a team can spend but the money that they're talking about is not the money that the team is spending on other stuff it's not even the money that the team is spending to bring players in it's the money the team is spending on wages and if you're going to do a cap on wages you have to give the people who would be directly affected by that a seat at the table which means you have to have a players union. If you're going to do a salary cap and you're going to negotiate a salary cap, you have to have a players union and a players union, an international players union that would be able to strike 
right? Because that's what we've seen in the United States mm-hmm. when the owners try to give a very hard salary cap that would, you know, screw over the entire, you know, groove of players from the top to the bottom, the players will go on strike. And it's not a fun process, but the players are always in the right when it comes to that stuff because all the owners try to do when they talk about a salary cap is not pay people what they're worth. That is fundamentally what or what what the market would dictate their value is. That's all that is. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, that, right, like problematic. I think, I think one thing, though, that I do like about this whole thing the most is FIFA has this idea to, to limit the amount of loan low knees you can have and the amount of, yeah. of amount of low knees you're bringing in, and that to me is a good idea because you have this issue with 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 the really big teams hoarding talent. Let's call it the no Hirona issue. Hirona <laughs> <laughs> no paradox, touch, right? Like Chelsea is a huge, you know, is a, is a huge like example of this, right? I think they have forty clubs on for, sorry, forty players on loan, yeah, which is kind of ridiculous and. They, they basically own the contracts of all of those players. Like if they want to call them back, they can. You know, no one, no other club can can have those players permanently. Like Chelsea owns a huge market share of, of, of players. And one, one, that, thing, one thing about that on top of that, right, is that it prevents the uh, smaller teams from the business model that, they'd all, that, that has proven effective for a lot of teams, which is you get these young players, you get these exciting players, they help your team continue to play in the top division, then you sell them at a wild profit. And that actually funds the rest of your team's operations for a few years until you can find the next exciting young player. Ajax is famous after their heyday for creating a, a system where you can develop players. Real Madrid has done it wildly successfully as well. Yeah, and and that's the thing, right? Like, if we were to allow this trend to continue, we're, the, the only clubs that would be able to pursue this are ones that have really well-funded, really well-skilled, really well-developed academies, and that's a really hard thing to do. Like, arguably harder than, you know, going out and buying a bunch of superstars because this takes years and years of work, and there's not many clubs across Europe that have those academies. Otherwise, you're a club that just lives off loans, you know, year to year. So the, yeah. I think the article mentions that they wanted to limit to like six to eight sounds reasonable. I think clubs would want to negotiate that upwards to like 10 or 12, but that is one very easy way to, to like to, to expand meritocracy in the league a yep. little bit. Totally I think that'd be very beneficial to, 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 to young, to the weaker team. Sorry. And that's probably the one that can be implemented the fastest and probably the one that would get through other the other idea is kind of shaky. Lots of questions about them, but this one I'm very much behind. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. So I think what in conclusion, a lot of kind of media. It's funny because I don't want to talk about FIFA having good intentions or doing the right thing or you know or whatever. But it actually does to me seem like the problems that they're trying to fix. At least they appear to have diagnosed some of them. Uh, I think that's correct to worry about the power of the super agent. I mean, Raiola, doesn't he like own one part of a team or part of a team in England now? I mean, like, I, I'm I'm under the impression that there is maybe not him, but there is an agent that owns like a chunk or his agency owns a chunk of a team, which is fucking insane. Uh, <laughs> and it, and I do think that limiting the power of these super agents to 
uh, to drive up the not not the wages because it's important to distinguish these things, but to drive up the transfer, the actual amount of transfer, like money that's transacted between the clubs for the contract. That actually, I think, to me is because what 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 we're really saying is that the clubs would otherwise agree on a market price that's lower for the players. Uh, for the per- the price of the player's contract, not not the, the amount of money the player is getting, but what the actual contract costs. And the only reason it doesn't help the player and it doesn't help the two clubs that these people uh, – that, that that they have this much power. The only thing it does is drive that price up. So they because they always get a chunk, a percentage of the total fee. So their incentive is to drive that fee up so high, so to to the extent that sometimes transactions that otherwise the market would allow, otherwise might be beneficial to both cl- both clubs and the player, right? Don't occur because of this mm-hmm. mid level transaction cost that is the power of these super agents like Raiola. Like it's very possible that a couple years ago Real Madrid and Paul Pogba and Juventus could have been benefited by making a deal for Pogba. Uh I don't know. It depends on who what you believe, but I think that one of the reasons that that didn't happen was because of Raiola's insane demands for that drove up the price. Uh now, in terms of obviously paying players, I think, of course, they should be represented. Of course, they should have agents. But the, the question of getting the club, the getting an agent involved in the actual negotiations over whether the cl- a club wants to buy the contract of a player, that to me is pretty insane. Agree 100%. Uh, so last topic, because um, I want to do a nice and like, yo, this is a good, 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 good level show for us. Um you, we mentioned at the very beginning of the show that we are kind of seeing a lot of new metrics, a lot of new analytics being created at the same time. I have sort of termed this the end of, I think, the beginning of the soccer analytics revolution. And I think that, I mean, that may have, that exact moment may have occurred with the advent of expected goals. But what we're seeing now is past chaining, showing these maps of past directions, formational heat maps, all of these different things are now being converted into, into usable metrics. And I think, Ohm, to me, the kind of golden goose or holy grail that will signify to me that we're really in the, the next highest stage of sports analytics in this sport would be a predictive measure, right? And a predictive a predictive stat that can that you can say, you know, where where we have, for example, in baseball, we've gotten to a point where we actually have stats that allow and the ability to project based on previous uh, accumulated data, project the uh, very down to the very much granular detail how people will react and and what their seasons are going to look like uh, and what they're going to play as moving forward. And to me, it seems like we're, there's still a lot more guessing in soccer. Though I think some of these analytics really are both beginning to be descriptive and I think we may be getting towards the level where we're going to create something predictive. Yeah, I mean, expected goals was kind of the first step to try to be more predictive, but like obviously it's it's not near perfect in, in that aspect, right? Like the idea, right, is you, you look at what the average is uh, for for people who take shots from a particular location and situation with all these factors, and you take someone who's like doubling their expected goals, and the idea is is you can say, well, I think that's not going to last. Or if you look at a team's defense and and they they're just 
overperforming their expected goals against by so much you think you, you, you can say, I don't think that's going to last because the quality of chances, you just can't keep missing that. Or I think like the goalkeeper, he can't keep like, for example, De Gea on Manchester United. Like, even though he's exceptional, he can't keep saving like this. But it's, you know, we've, we have these cases where, you know, like Burnley, for example, um, there have been a couple of teams in league oh, that just consistently keep overshooting expected goals. There's a lot of refinement needed there, but like it started a good basis. And then I think... I think the like the the key thing to do is to move beyond non-shot models because like shots like you said like you need a huge database of data to to be able to be more predictive and shots a, a, as often as they are you know they they still only happen like yeah. 15 to 20 times a game per team if you're a really good offensive team. So I think uh, americansoccerinalysis.com you should definitely read this article if you're interested in this stuff. They wrote an article, you know, late August yep. called the next level of, ex- of XG expected possession goals. And it's a non-shot model. And the whole idea, it's, it's a little complex. There's only so much I can explain it here, but essentially the, they assign each zone on the pitch an expected goal value, a positive one and a negative one. And so essentially they're, they're saying if you're in the center circle, we're assigning a probability that this this possession right here, what is the chance that it will turn into a goal? And then if you turn it over here, what is the chance that the other team will score a goal? And this just opens you up to a totally different like area of expected goals. It gives you so many more data points and it allows you to really, you know, not only analyze a team's style, but start to maybe predict things that are going yeah. to happen. So for example, like the, in in the article itself, they 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 go through MLS teams to describe style, and they find that you know teams who play the ball out from the back have a lot of negative expected possession goals ag- against them because they're playing in very risky areas. But the sign that a that a team you know, it, and then they then they look at the mistakes that happen there. So if you want to play out from the back, essentially what you want to do is you want to have a high negative score, but you don't want to have a lot of mistakes. You know, right. as as a ratio of those negatives, and that just opens you up to a whole new way of being able to analyze teams and look at how you want to play, like to identify who is the weak link in this chain here. You know, and you know how should I set up my team if I want to play out from the back and that kind of stuff. And it allows you to then start your analysis, you know, point all the way from the keeper instead of looking only at the shot. Where and this is this is the kind of stuff that like really excites me. And, you know, it's we're still in the realm where it can be understood by, like, the everyday man. Like, I am by no means, like, this math nerd who knows all this stuff. Like, I know as much math as the average person, you know, but if you if you just, you know, take, like, two minutes to try to understand what they're saying, you can get it. And that's yeah. really exciting because it helps your knowledge. When we, when, to me, when we take the next step is, like, when we go to baseball and, like, basketball, when people start talking about metrics that it's difficult for the average person to understand – yeah, that's when we've really taken that next leap. But now we're in this really exciting stage where we're, we're moving up, we're finding new metrics, but everyone can still understand it. And I'd soak up all that information yeah. and learn as much as you can for as long as you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of where we are. Uh, I mean, and 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 what's what what is I mean, really, really astounding to me about all of this. I mean, about all of this, this is that it's. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be astounding. But it's coming amazingly. Um, it does appear to be coming a lot from the United States. And it shouldn't be surprising because mm-hmm. the, the United States is where 
the original sort of sports analytics movement came from. But that being said, <laughs> this the fact that this uh, that the these things are happening with the basis. Uh, being a lot being MLS teams is fascinating. And like, obviously we, what we've done is we've created, now we see like, you know, uh, uh, we've seen it, we saw X goal chain and we've seen now, I mean, this stat is truly incredible, but what the, the, the way people are working with expected goals is I think uh, the next step after this is a soccer version of something called uh, something like wins above replacement. I, mm-hmm. I I think that when you get enough of these metrics that are able to quantify players who are all over, like right now, expected goals uh, are it's much more of a team metric. But this, you know, this uh, 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 possession expected possession goals appears to me to include metrics that are actually granular enough to talk about players by themselves. So it's not just basketball mm-hmm. plus minus. How does team do when the guy's off the pitch, blah, blah, It's actually like the notion of over an entire season. If we can get enough and, and if we continue to think about this data over and ex- extrapolate it over an entire season when we now have this type of data over an entire season, I believe that we will be able to create something like a soccer war uh, which is an incredible stat. It would be an incredible and, and a monumental achievement to be able to quantify the uh, b- both right the the positive and the negative pose- expected possession goals of each player, and say over the course of the season, this person uh, the average is this. This person was below it. One of the best ways like X team could improve would be by bringing someone in. Who who was at least league average at this at this position based on his uh, expected possession goals, for example, like this that is sort of where the war like this this player by himself in an eleven player team this player added this many wins right or like we quantify them as wins but like it's a, it's a fascinating stat and I I mean that's what's one of the things that's really excited to me about this because I see in this stat. Uh, one another thing you know, I see in this stat the ability to talk about uh, to talk about defenders and to talk about you know in the terms of expected goals, which which is something that people have finally begun to understand. Yeah, I I agree with all of that one hundred percent. I think it's interesting that you brought up the point about how Americans are kind of driving this forward because expected goals was a thing before before football, before soccer, and it was a thing in hockey. And it was I think it was Americans who developed that stat there. And then it was Americans. I think Kaylee, Michael Kaylee popularized that idea within soccer with his with right. his like expected goal charts. And I think I you know, because going back to Friend like, of the Man Madrid of, podcast, by the way, Michael Kaylee. Yeah, he was on Keon interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. And going back to like our very like original point at the, at the beginning of the podcast, how you know there's this kind of like tribalism against having people outside your area be part of sports. There is a certain prejudice against having Americans in the sport, partly because we we, we say soccer and we don't say football. It's just like <laughs> these <laughs> these stupid Americans. What are they doing in our sport? We don't want you here. You're too different. I think this is a really like tangible piece of evidence 
that Americans are really, I mean, not that we need to justify our existence in the sport. We can do whatever the fuck we want here because like, it's a global sport. Right. But this is an example that we're tangibly bringing something to the sport that, you know, other nations don't because our culture surrounding statistics is totally different. Like in England, there's just a lot of anger, you know, a lot of resistance against this type of thing because you know it's traditional it's about who can like i don't know like beat up the other person more that wins the game like the stupidest fucking ideas but that it's coming from here shows that like this is why it's great that football is a global sport yeah because it gets to benefit from so many different areas and so many different perspectives and why it's absolutely fucking mind-boggling to be like you're not a real fan if you don't live here and attend the games live like you're missing out dude like this is just one example. I mean, there's there's simpler examples, just like, you know, some of the great chants like come from South yeah. America, et cetera, et cetera. This is why I love the sport. And I'm just so excited to see how where we're going with this whole stat, you know, stat thing. And I'll, I'll be watching closely. And, and if you aren't, I I encourage you guys to, to follow closely as well. Yeah, get into this now because it is it's going to revolutionize the game. I, I, I really believe it. I wrote... Just to plug something I wrote, I wrote in 2011 an article about the coming soccer statistics revolution, and I feel very good about that article. If you want to go look that up, that's me. Um, uh, It's an article in The Atlantic magazine called Here Come the Soccer Nerds, (laughs) or Geeks, I can't remember what it is, but you can look that up. It's a very interesting one. It's about how um, at that point Manchester City became the first uh, team in all of Europe, or the first major team in Europe, to release um, time and uh, time and movement data that they had collected over uh, a period of seasons to the public. Not exactly to the public, not like the original baseball stuff where no one was even tracking it. So Bill James literally just sat and watched games and tracked, you know, the 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 angle of balls and all that stuff. But they had, they had a, a contract with Opta, which is the great sports statistics company that also jealously guards this data. But they decided that they would release it to people who would present them with ideas of how to use it. So that I wrote that back then. We have, I think, much better data now. But the key thing, um, and I talked to our friend Graham Macri, who I don't know if he still posts as much, but he did incredible soccer. He was one of the – so he created a baseball metric that we still talk about today. Um, it's one of the FIP metrics, fielding independent, patch, uh, fielding independent pitching metrics. Um, and he was working on soccer ones. And what we see with Grams, uh, which what he used to do is create very detailed pass maps, which was before anyone was really doing that stuff, he was creating these incredibly detailed pass maps. And now what we see is the same uh, – uh, uh, website American Soccer Analysis with the same, you know, uh, group of people, Elliot McKinley in particular, I really like, um, has been creating these very, I think, brilliant maps uh, of the passing angles from each player in each of normal position and the distance that they go on there on the pitch. And you can overlay that over time to see how different coaches have asked different players to play. And it's an incredibly interesting descriptive metric. Uh, so this is just another part of, like I said, I think this is the the end of the beginning of the soccer statistics revolution. And I say that partially because, Ohm, as you know, uh, a few, I don't know if it was weeks now or maybe months, God, Jose Mourinho said something along the lines of, yeah, they were better 
well, I don't think they were better. We had more expected goals. And I was like, fuck, that's a huge get. That's a huge get for us. <laughs> I actually didn't hear that. I know Wenger said that, I think, like last season or the season before. No, Mourinho even... said it. That's oh, really dude, good. that's insane. That is awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, despite all the, like, resistance in England, like Sky Sports has, like, put up expected goal, like, charts on, on, the, like, on their TV broadcasts. Like, I mean, they did some of it, like, wrongly, which, you know, hurts a little bit but you know it's gonna be a struggle like you know you take a couple steps forward you take a step backward it's gonna take a while like it's not a new idea it's been around like like game when you wrote this article i think like two years later is when it became a real concept in in soccer so like 2013 when ted nutson decided to like start stats bomb and everything yep so it's it's going to take time for the public. Like a lot of people still don't like it. Like even though this is a well-established metric, no reasonable or like respected statistician contests the validity or value of it. You know, it's going to take time. But I, it's it's just a cultural shift. People are resistant to change. People don't like their ideas being disproved, disproven by numbers. But you know, ten years from now, I think we'll be in a lot better place culturally outside of the United States, and that's when it gets even more exciting. And I can't wait, honestly. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm I'm really excited. Om, thank you so much for coming on the show. Evan will be back next week, obviously. Uh, it's great to talk to you, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm glad to be here. I'm seven on Bella, my chick from Bella. My will from Germany, I'm cooler than LL. I'm sipping on Bella, my chick from Bella. My will from Germany, I'm cooler than LL. I clap my nigga like Pancake. I clap my nigga like Pancake. I'm swaggin', I got flavor, I got song, call me Ragu. I love my baby girl, pussy ball, call her Caillou. I clap my nigga like Pancake. Yeah, that away, I'm about to grab the rave. I'm about to grab the key. Snatch a baby girl and skeet all on her face I got a feeling that the day gonna be a fantastic day I'm getting tired of that role, I think I want petite Felicia Is all I win or you lose cause I wanna sell the feet And everybody wanna have the songs, well I got the recipe I'm sipping on Bella cause it made me feel like I'm on SEC I love my baby when I come home, I be rubbing on her feet And she be always in my chest, she hate when I be in the streets My real taller than my son, about to drop another one You think a nigga in the band away Chip from Bella, my whip from Germany, I'm cooler than LL. I got my nigga like